Last week we took a break from our regular scheduled program of Hebrews, but we're now back on track with Hebrews chapter 7. So I want to review where we left off uh, working through the book of Hebrews. Now, do you remember back in chapter 5 what the writer said? He said, look, it's about to get deep up in here. And he said, we're about to get into the meat about Jesus. And he looked up and he looked at some eyeballs and he's like, oh, they're not with me. He's like, all right, look, guys, we got to get off the milk and we got to get into the meat. Some of you, he's getting on to them. He's saying, look, some of you guys are still on the milk of the word and you want me to teach again the basics about Jesus and repentance and the foundational things about baptism. He says, look, we got to go deeper here. I've got a whole lot more I want to teach you about Jesus. He said, and then he kind of said, now, you're not one of those people that fall away and can't handle this. You're with me. Now, come on, let's do this and let's go deep. And as he wrapped up chapter 6, he said these words, and I'm going to read them again because it leads right into where we are. And in, at the end of chapter 6, he said this. He said, Jesus is the hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And as we were studying that, I shared with you kind of a visual image that came to my mind. He's making the point that Jesus is anchoring your soul. He's the only hope that will anchor your soul that's sure, steadfast. We've talked about boat anchors because he likes to use those marine analogies that he's the anchor that digs deeper and deeper as it pulls. He's a good, solid, sure, steadfast anchor. But then he talks about Jesus being our forerunner, our pioneer, the one who goes before us. And when, when I was thinking about that, I just pictured, I'm no mountain climber. I know that surprises you, but I'm no mountain climber, but I have seen it on TV and I have slept at a Holiday Inn Express, so I can speak with authority here. But I, I see them strap on this harness that has this little latch here that they hook with those C-clamp type things and the rope, and that guy goes up first up the mountain and he kind of anchors those others that are coming behind him, and they're on the other end of that rope, anchored on with that clip, and so... Jesus is that anchor, that forerunner, that pioneer of our faith that he, when he died on the cross, now we're going to switch to some priestly analogies, priestly images that the Old Testament brings forward. Jesus made a sacrifice for sin, only it was himself that he sacrificed. And as he sacrificed himself, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and then he ascended to the throne of God as our pioneer, as our forerunner, with that rope dangling behind attached to his followers. And so he went before us and he offered his own blood at the altar of God the Father at his throne. And he says, this blood, my perfect blood, covers the sin of those who are my children. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father and he took that rope that was attached to him and he wrapped it around the throne and he tied it in a great secure knot and he says, it's done, it's finished, you're anchored to me. And I kind of picture this life is a journey climbing that mountain and it's tiring and it's hard and sometimes we slip and we fall and Jesus has got us and he's pulling and he's going to ensure that we're going to get to the throne room of God. And we're, as unholy people apart from him, he enables us to stand in the holy place of God and worship God forever and ever and ever and ever. You know how long forever and ever and ever is? Take a feather and swipe it across the diamond. And there's a little erosion that took place. And swipe it again 
and swipe it again and swipe it and swipe a feather across the diamond until it finally arose the diamond away and you've reached the first day of eternity. It's forever. And Jesus is the anchor. He's the forerunner. He's the one who secures us based on his own blood, his own perfection, his own sacrifice, his own works. And he says, you trust in me, you hook on to me, and I'm going to make sure you get there as you climb through this life. And he's saying that. And then he uses this phrase that the Hebrew listeners, and it just blows their mind. And that's what we're going to look at today. He uses this phrase to describe Jesus saying, having become a high priest. I'm still in chapter 6, the last words. Having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you're going, what in the world is he talking about? And that's exactly what the readers of Hebrews were doing too. They're just like, what are you talking about? Who is this Melchizedek figure? And why would we put our faith in a priest who is not of the priesthood that God gave us? And what do you mean he's forever? And that's what he's going to answer. And it's going to blow their minds. And normally we work through verses and then we explain and we read and we explain. I'm going to front end load everything today because this is complicated. This is meat. This is what he was saying. Get ready. It's about to get deep. And if you're not ready, you're going to tune out. And so we're going to, I'm going to keep y'all, I'm going to keep, I'm going to ask for feedback. And when I ask for feedback, that's not rhetorical. I want you to say something, okay? So I'm trying to keep you in there because I don't want to see you fall asleep in this complicated stuff. All right, so he's going to explain three reasons why Jesus is a better hope. Three reasons why Jesus is a better hope than the hope that they've had. The first reason is Jesus serves in a superior priesthood. This is in the first 16 verses. He's saying, listen, the reason Jesus is a better hope for you to be able to approach the throne of God and not be wrathfully condemned for your sin, the reason that he's a better hope is, first of all, he comes from a better or a superior priesthood. Now, let me walk through the Bible and explain what this means, a priesthood. Every priest serves in an order of someone, the order of Aaron. He's in the priesthood of Aaron. The order of Melchizedek is the priesthood established in the order of Melchizedek. And so the priesthood is kind of the office in which someone serves. Kind of like we say, the office of the presidency. The president serves in that office. There's the authority, the authority is in the office. So this priesthood that is superior, that Jesus is in, is called the order of Melchizedek. Well, where did all this come from? Well, if you read the story of your Bible, remember the Passover. Does anybody remember the Passover? Okay, some of you got it. Everybody remember the Passover? All right, man, we are getting it today. All right, so the Passover was after Exodus. They came out, and the the last plague was, hey, your firstborn will die because of your rebellion against God unless, unless... You trust my word that I'm about to tell you. And the word I promised, God said, was if you'll take the blood of a lamb and spread it over your doorpost, I'm so excited about the movie Exodus. This is coming out soon. I don't know if it's biblically sound, but it looks really cool. I'll tell you afterwards if it's biblically sound or not. But the point is, he says, hey, spread the blood of a lamb that I'm telling you. If you follow me, if you trust me, you'll do what I say and your firstborn will be saved. Those firstborn were saved of God's people, those who trusted God. They spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, and God spared those children. And God said, now they're mine. Those firstborn were dead unless I stepped in. I saved them. I redeemed them. I owned them. They're mine. 
Then you read through the Bible and God said, now let me replace, instead of owning the firstborn for a special purpose, I'm going to trade them out for the children of this guy named Levi. They're the Levites, the tribe of Levi. And so instead of the firstborn that was in all the tribes, now he says, the tribe of Levi will represent all those firstborn. They'll be the representatives of all the tribes of God's people. And so he then, we see as we read the story of the Bible, that God starts using those Levites in a special way. For example, he tells them, camp around the place of worship. Have all the Levites circle the place of worship and camp there, and they will prevent the people from improperly entering, entering into the presence of God. Because if they come to the presence of holy God as sinful people, apart from my prescribed manner, they'll die. So God graciously says, hey, Levites, camp around the worship center and keep them away so that they don't come in and improperly. And so the Levites start to take on this role of interceding on behalf of the people as it relates to God and the people in worship. Then we know we get to Moses, and God gives Moses his word, his commands, his law. We know part of them as the Ten Commandments. And he establishes the, a more complete worship system. And he, a part of that system was, how can sinful people enter into the presence of God? And that answer is, God graciously gives them a sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system, you had a priest who... Offer blood of uh, offerings and the blood of sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. And he went in one day a year into the Holy of Holies and he laid that blood on the altar and said, this covers the sins of the people. And he backed out and he had to cover himself before he went in. This became the hope of Israel, the hope of God's people to have God in their midst, though they are sinful. The first one was Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron was the first priest. All of his sons were the sons of Aaron. They were the lineage of priests, son after son of the family line, Levites of Aaron's family. Levites worked around the temple and around the tabernacle, but the family of Aaron, his sons, the direct lineage, one priest would serve, then he would die, the next son would serve, and he would die, the next son. So that's where we are. That's the Aaron priesthood. And that was the hope of Israel. They're, all they knew, their whole mind had been set on, God gave us these priests. We come to God through these priests. They are our hope. Thank God for these priests offering sacrifices for our sins. And then the writer of Hebrews comes to them and says, there's a better hope. And they're just going, wait, what? Now, this can't happen. So listen carefully here. But I want you to feel what they felt. This can't happen. This is hypothetical. But if someone came to you today and said, if you trust in Jesus and someone came to you and said, there's a better hope than Jesus. And you would just be like, wait, what? What do you mean there's a better hope than Jesus? And he said, let me explain. There is this priesthood who's bigger than Jesus' priesthood. Now that can't happen because Jesus had said, Jesus is the final word. In fact, the Jews should have seen, the Hebrews should have seen that this all pointed to Jesus and they missed it. But it was that radical for them to hear this. Like, what? What do you mean the priests, that, that they're not sufficient. They're not enough that Jesus is better. His priesthood is better. He's the one I should be pointing, trusting in. And so that's what he's going to explain. And that's where we're going today. Three reasons Jesus is better is, first of all, he serves in a superior priesthood. Let's read verses 1 through 16 and pieces together and see if we can see where I'm getting this from. In verse 1, he says, For this Melchizedek, he's talking about Melchizedek's priesthood. And he says, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, 
who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of, pre- of peace. Hold there for a second. All right, so what the author has done is what he's been doing all along. He's in your New Testament writing it out, and he's got his fingers in the Old Testament, and he's reading and going, oh my gosh, look at this, Jesus is awesome. And what he says is what you read about in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, Father Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, the, 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 he's it. And you don't get any higher than Abraham in the faith. He says, let me tell you about what happened with Abraham. He said, Abraham was at war. He won. He had spoils of victory. And he came back. And then he met this dude named Melchizedek. And what did he do? Two things. He offered tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed him. And both of those acts indicate the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham. They're like, what? Yeah, he's saying Abraham's awesome and he's a gift from God, but do you realize that Melchizedek blessed him? And he's going to tell us in just a second. I'm going to read it. The greater blesses the lesser. And Abraham tithed to him. The lesser tithed to the priest. And so that's where he's going to go. He's going to explain Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And listen to verse 3 and following. He says, without father, without mother. He's describing Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides as a priest perpetually. He's saying, listen, in the, in the, the scriptures, Melchizedek, we don't know his dad. We don't know his mom. We don't know his genealogy. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. All we know is this. He served as a priest his entire life. He was called the king. He was a priest king, king of peace, king of righteousness. And he's going, do you see how this points to Jesus? An eternal king, an eternal prince, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And so the author of Hebrews is showing how Melchizedek points to a a better priest, a better priesthood. And he goes on to continue in verse 4. Now observe how great this man was. To whom Abraham, our patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils to him. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commanded in the law to collect a tenth from the people that is from their brethren, although these are descendants from Abraham. He's saying, even though your priests are high figures and they're important, they tithe to, to Melchizedek too. And they're going, do what? How did they tie them? Because they weren't even alive. And he's going to go explain in just a second. They were in the loins of Abraham. Basically, they're saying, look, Abraham was as high as they get. Moses came from Abraham. The descendants of Aaron and his, his priests all came from Moses who came from Abraham. All of them are submissive to and less than the, the priest Melchizedek. And so he's building this case of the superiority of Melchizedek. And then he just talks about in verse 6, but one of those... But one whose genealogy is not traced from them, not traced from the Levites, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise, being Abraham. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in the case of the one who receives them, of whom it is witness, he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So the author is pointing out the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood by pointing to the fact that it is that he blessed Abraham and Abraham gave tithes to him, and so would all the lesser priests 
be considered less than Melchizedek. And then he goes into the nature of the priesthood. Bear with me. Don't, go, don't fall asleep. Y'all still with me? All right. Ooh, that was good. I like that. All right. So verse 11, he's going to explain one, less, one more aspect of the superiority. He says, now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, those priests that you love, now, if perfection came through them, for on the basis of it, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest? If they were good enough, then why would we need another priest to arise according to this order of Melchizedek? And, and they not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed... Of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belongs to a different tribe. He doesn't belong from the tribe of Levi. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from the tribe of Judah, a tribe without reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. He's saying Jesus is is not just a priest in the line of Levi. He's a completely different kind of priest. He's a priest. He came from Judah. They said nothing in the law about Judah having priests. He said Jesus came from Judah. He came from the order of Melchizedek. He came from a different priesthood, a higher priesthood, a priesthood that you don't even get. You don't even have a clue about. This is blowing your mind, but this existed and you didn't even know it. In verse 15, it's clear still, if another priest arises to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. He's saying, your priests, the Levites, that you've put your hope in, they were made priests by the law, the fact that they are of the Levite family. He's saying, not so with Jesus. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He says, Jesus has made a different kind of priest. His priesthood is an indestructible priesthood. It's the priesthood of the indestructible God, the priesthood of the most high God. He is a different, a superior priesthood that he serves in. And it's called the order of Melchizedek. And when you read about Melchizedek, you get a picture of Jesus. Because he, we, don't know when his, we don't know his genealogy, his, when he began, when he ended. We just know he's called priest, king, king of righteousness, king of peace, and his priesthood lasts forever. And so these Hebrews who thought everything was about Moses and the Levites and Aaron and the priests just had their world exploded. I mean, it's challenging everything they ever thought was right. You ever had that experience where you grow up and you're a kid and, and all you know is Southeast Shreveport and all you know is Norris Ferry Church and all you know is your family and the truths that they taught you and their history. And, and you, you've made sense of life in that realm of knowledge. And then you go to college. And they introduce stuff and you're just like, what? It, uh, this, things aren't computing anymore. And it just rocks your world. And you travel to another country and you're just like, oh my gosh. Everybody doesn't do things the way we do. And it just starts to blow your mind. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying, you thought this was all there was, this priesthood of the Aaron and the Levites that started with Moses when he gave you the law. I'm telling you, there's been this priesthood that existed forever. 
eternities past, before the foundations of the earth, this priesthood existed, and Melchizedek served in that priesthood. But there's this other one who came, and his name is Jesus. And he's greater than this little priesthood that you know about. That's good. That's a blessing. But don't put your hope in that. So what does this say to us? Let's get personal for a minute. Where, where, where are we right now? We're in church. That's a gift from God. And this is an awesome church. Hey, come on now. Shut me down. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is a blessing. God has given us a church where we take membership seriously. So you've got people who are serious about their faith come alongside you when you struggle. That's awesome. I mean, we need that. Baptism, we celebrated that Sunday night. Man, it was awesome. We were all brought to tears if someone just celebrated baptism. It was awesome. At, at Lord's Supper, it's just such a beautiful picture of, of the body and blood of Christ, and it reminds us to uh, uh, put our hope in Christ and what his death did for us. And, and those are all in a community group and serving together and... It's just awesome. A friend, I tell you, a, a good friend who is there for you when you need them, who gives you confidence, you know, because they just say the right things. Or in my case, they just listen because I talk so much. But that friend that just gets you through, they're gifts from God. All these things are gifts from God. Whatever faith background you have, the sacraments, baptisms, all these things are gifts from God, but if they become our hope, they let you down. If you put your hope in those gifts and think that that's what secures you eternally, we are going to be tragically surprised to find out they don't, they can't anchor our souls. All those gifts, friends, sacraments, ordinances, baptisms, anything that we have are meant to point us to Christ. Anything you love about a good friend who sustains you in a trial should say, man, imagine Jesus who made that person and blessed me with that friendship. He's the one true hope that anchors our soul. So be thankful for these lesser hopes, but they cannot be the hope that anchors our soul. Doing religious activity will not satisfy the demands of God. Only the blood of Jesus satisfies the demands of God. And so the hope that anchors your soul is not even faith in your own faith. The hope that anchors your soul is Jesus that when you enter into the holy place, the only hope that you and I have of entering into the most holy of holies through the sanctuary, through the clouds, at the feet of God, the Father, is that if I'm covered in Jesus and I'm saying, I'm only here because of him. Look, I'm attached to him. Amen. Right? I mean, it's not going to be, I went to church. It's not going to be, I was baptized. It's not going to be, I gave money. I was a good kid. I grew up. I tried to do more good. Than... He's going to say, did you not read what I wrote you? You've missed it. All those things pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the only hope that anchors our soul. And so that's what he goes to. And I just got to preach and I have no idea where I am in my notes. <laughs> so Jesus is serving in a superior priesthood. Second... Jesus serves as the superior priest. So at first was supposed to just establish the priesthood 
and then show how it's eternal. And now we see how the eternal priest serves in that eternal priesthood. It's like there's this eternal priesthood. There's been these temporary priests, but where's the, where's the eternal priest? And Jesus shows up. Verse 17 through 24, he talks about the superiority of, of the priest. He says, for it is witnessed of him, Jesus, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former command because of its weaknesses and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Those, the hope of the priests, of the Levites, of the law of Moses, those didn't make anything perfect. Baptism doesn't make you perfect. Lord's Supper doesn't make you perfect. Church attendance doesn't make you perfect. Those are all gifts from God, and they're to point you to, to the ultimate. But if you think that's going to make you perfect, he says, no, those were set aside. And on, bringing, and on the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Here's the hope that we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, And he says, they were made priests without oath, but Jesus was made a priest with an oath. And he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Old covenant was good that Moses gave, but this is a better covenant. The former priests that served in the Levites, the former priests, on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers. Why? Because they died. They were prevented by death from continuing on. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So he's just tearing down the Levitical priesthood and the law and saying, look, guys, It was only a temporary measure to hold you until Christ came. But you've put all your hope in that, and it's not going to work. It was never meant to be a permanent deal. There's this eternal priesthood. That was just a a temporary priesthood. That was lesser. There was the old law. It's been done away. This is radically new and different. You've got to get over that. That was all supposed to point you to Jesus. Your religion was never meant to be the hope of your soul. It was to help you focus on Jesus. So Jesus is the great high priest. He's the superior priest. Why? Because he's eternal. It's not live and serve for a while, die, live the next one, serve. He says, no, he doesn't ever die. He's eternal. He's resurrected. He's the perpetual priest. And then he says, there's two reasons why you can bank on this. Quoting that Psalm 110, he says, first of all, because God doesn't change his mind. Aren't you glad God doesn't change his mind? I mean, don't you just hate it when you bank on someone and they change their mind? Just ask my wife. She lives with me. I'm changing my mind 24 hours a day. But God doesn't change his mind. The whole story of the Bible is one story, and it's this story. It's a story about how Jesus has been God's plan for your salvation from beginning to end. He does not change his mind. You can bank on it. Number two... How can you, why can you count on Jesus as the superior priest of a superior priest? Because he does not die. I mean, he may want to be your priest. I may want to be there for you, but guess what? I'm going to die. Jesus does not die. He lives forever. He's of a superior priesthood, and he is the superior priest because God doesn't change his mind, and Jesus won't die. Finally, we see 
He serves as a superior intercessor. This is where it gets personal. This is where you start to see the benefits. So what does this do with, how does this help me when I leave this place? How does this benefit me? And he says in verse 25, hence, therefore, also he, referring to Jesus, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that they, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those priests, those high priests, to offer sacrifices for themselves, for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. And that's where the next chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, that's where he's going, that right there. He's just going to say, let's look at this. Let's just take a deeper, deeper, deeper look at this. So today we're just going to focus on one of them. And that is the fact he's a superior priest because he serves as the superior intercessor. What is an intercessor? It's a go-between. That's what the priest did. They, unholy people, cannot be in the presence of a holy God and live to tell about it. So God gave them hope. I'm going to let these guys come in once a year and make sacrifice. They're going to intercede on your behalf. Now, before they went in, they had to, because they were sinful and weak, they had to sacrifice to cover their own sins, and then they went through the veil into the Holy of Holies, shaken. They had ropes tied to them, literally, because if they died in there, they'd be pulled out. And so they were in there shaking and offering sacrifices of blood. This is God, this is what you told me to do here. Cover the sins of the people. Get me out of here. And he says, that's not the way it is with Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He didn't have to sacrifice sin to cover his, sacrifice something to cover his own sin. He's the God man. He's the great high priest. When he went in, he laid his own life at the altar. And he says, God, I know he said he wasn't going to do that anymore. We're working on that. But I got, I got him. He's, he's one of mine. I know she's, she's done it again. But we're, we're going to make it. We're going to get there. When we get her here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish the process. But she's covered in my blood. She knows I'm her only hope. And, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. The reason this should blow us away is it means he's always there, always covering us, always got our back, always claiming us if we're hooked unto him by faith alone. We talked as a staff, how does this minister to you? How does this make a difference? How does this touch your heart? Daily I sin, so daily I need his intercession. 
And this tells me Jesus will always be there today, tomorrow, the next day, 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 and on and on and on. Where people will let you down, people will give up on you, people say, no, you, you should have learned by now. Jesus says, I'm always there for you. As long as you're trusting in me, I've got you. And that's what should spur us on to wage war with sin. The grace is so amazing that he keeps loving, keeps forgiving. He never turns his back on me. How could I not fight to be holy and to live for his glory? This encourages us because it tells us that Jesus is the anchor that holds us and not the other way around. Jesus holds us and not us holding onto him with all of our might. He will not let go. He will not change his mind. This has been God's plan from the foundations of the earth. If you hook onto Jesus, he will never let go of you. We talked about when a foster child lives in a crazy environment where the household is crazy, the parents are just crazy, and it's unstable, and it's unhealthy, it's detrimental to the child. And then someone lovingly comes in and adopts them and brings them into a loving, stable, healthy environment, and you watch the kid just flourish. It goes from making Fs to making As goes from doing great things to when people have said there's no hope in this person's life. That's similar to, that's a picture of what happens to us when we latch on to Christ and we see his stability, his faithfulness, his unchangeableness, that he will never let us down. He will always be there for us. And we start to be able to flourish. We have the peace of God and the confidence in God and it stabilizes us to build our lives upon. It's a beautiful picture of the blessing of his faithfulness. Finally, it speaks to the quality of his guarantee. When he says nothing can separate you from me, he, he can say it and it's true. He guarantees it because he's the eternal great high priest. There is no higher power. There is no greater confidence that you can have than his word to you. I got you. Nothing can separate you. Though I continue to fail, though you continue to fail, you can know he is faithful forever. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you've been putting your hope in. It's probably been some good stuff. Probably been good things that God gave you to help you and encourage you. But don't think that anything is going to secure your soul apart from Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for religious organization, practices, things that we come up with, that we, we see things in your scripture and as people, we try to understand what they mean in different denominations, understand them differently, and 
try to sort through it all. But ultimately, the only hope that anchors our soul is Jesus. And knowing that Jesus died on the cross to give himself as the blood sacrifice that covers sin. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father to plead his blood over his believers. And that it's that blood, and only that blood, just like we see pictured in the Passover where they spread the blood over the doorpost, it's only the blood that we can put our hope in. The wrath is certain on sin, but those who trust in the blood of Jesus are redeemed, are saved, are spared. And it's Jesus who anchors their soul forever. And Lord, whenever we do any religious performances that we do, may they only be grounded in an expression of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And may our hope only be the rock-solid hope of Jesus because he is a better God.